0: as you're turning there, friends, why don't we pray before we look at the Word of God. Lord, we approach you right now. We approach your Word. And we recognize that any time we have an encounter with the Word of God, we will be changed. We will either be changed because we responded to it in a softness of heart, a willingness to hear, or we will respond to it with a hardness of heart, a callousness. Lord, I pray that we would respond to your word willingly, today. I pray that we would be changed for the better instead of for the worse. God, as I, I pray that as we, as we look at the text that, that not the prepared words of a preacher would be powerful because we know, I know that, that my words have no power but I pray that we would have this confidence today that your, your word has power and we beg of you to unleash that power on our lives now. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you're turning to John 14, uh, it's important to give just a little bit of information about what's going on in the gospel of John. I don't know if you have picked up on this, but a lot of the gospel of John has to do with Jesus being in Jerusalem ready to die. Have you noticed that? I mean, John is 21 chapters long, 21 chapters long, And Jesus has been in Jerusalem since like chapter 12. Does that make sense? is almost half of the book is about Jesus being in Jerusalem, getting ready to say goodbye. So so for the last, I don't know, about 40% of the book is Jesus saying goodbye. Compare that to Luke. Luke's gospel is 24 chapters long. He doesn't enter Jerusalem until chapter 19. The end of the story, right? But it's almost like in John's gospel, most of the story or half of the story is the end of the story. And this should be important to us. This, this tells us something about what God is trying to tell us through John's gospel. These are Jesus' final days. These are Jesus' final hours. And how appropriate that we, on this day before Easter Sunday, on this Sunday before Easter Sunday, we should look at some of Jesus' final words. You know, a person's last words are very important to listen to. I remember when, when my, my grandfather passed away uh, in 2006, and his, his decline took place over a couple of weeks, and he was able and had time to invite members of the family in to speak to him. Some of them... He, he invited in because he knew that they did not know Christ and he shared Christ with them. Others uh, of us who, who did know Christ, he invited them in and, and had special words kind of tailored to who they were and his relationship with them. And I can guarantee you, I don't know what he said to every person in there, but I can guarantee you that everybody listened and hung on every word that he said because they were his final words. Today, we're going to see some final words of Jesus, some of the things that he said while he's in Jerusalem preparing to die. And so we, like, like coming up alongside a loved one's deathbed, we should be hanging on every word that Jesus has to say in the last of John's gospel. But I got to give you a they call it a trigger warning today, right? When when it, I'm going to say some things, Jesus is going to say some things that that our culture doesn't like, but that God says is good for us. Okay, so can we agree that whatever God says is good for us is good for us? Okay, okay. So I'm going to say some things. Jesus is going to say some things, and I'm I'm simply going to say what Jesus said. And these things are, you might find them even grating against your own flesh. Because we too have been kind of slow cooked in the culture around us. And so let me encourage you to do kind of a little self-assessment today. As you hear the things that the Bible says, if they seem to grate against you a little bit, to make you uncomfortable. That's a sign. That's the symptom of you maybe drinking in some of the philosophy of the culture such that the Bible starts to sound odd, right? When the Bible starts to sound odd, uncomfortable to us, that's a sign that we've drunk in things from the culture, from unbiblical ideas. So anyway, I'm, just, I'm trying to preface these things. Because of this, a little bit of what you can expect from me as a pastor. There are basically two philosophies about how to build a church. Okay, If you could just kind of collapse them all down into two. There are basically only two philosophies about how to build or nurture a church. I believe in teaching on the hard teachings of the Bible... For this reason, the first philosophy about how to build a church is to do everything you can to trim down the doctrine such that if someone were to walk into your church, they would never hear anything that quite made them feel uncomfortable. Trim back the doctrine, make faith as easy as possible. Anything that kind of feels like dead weight in the Bible, just kind of go around it, skip around it for a Sunday. Make the faith as easy as possible to wrap our heads around. Remove the controversial bits. Make it attractional, whatever can attract. It's kind of least common denominator, Christianity. That's kind of the first philosophy. Cast a broad net. The second philosophy is to teach the Bible in its fullness. Unleash the Scriptures. Here's the benefit of this second pathway. If you just preach the Scriptures and then God builds your church, you can know that it was him and not any strategy that some smart pastor or some smart church came up with. Friends, that is why we don't try to trim down the Bible. We try to unleash the Bible because we don't have any power. I don't have any power, but the Bible does. Do you believe that, church? The Bible has power to build us as individuals and to build us as a people. You know, there are some people who are Coke people and some people who are Pepsi people. I'm more of a Pepsi person. I mean, like, if I had a bad taste in my mouth, I might put some Coke in there and swish it around or something. But I, I like Pepsi. Okay, Pepsi, I, I'm more of a Pepsi guy. But here's what I know about both camps, Coke people Pepsi people. Neither one like it when their drink is watered down because it loses its power. Friends, we are tempted to think that the gospel becomes more powerful. We're tempted to think the gospel becomes more powerful when we make it more explainable. When we explain it away when we make it less offensive friends the reality is when we try to make the gospel less offensive it's it's like putting water in your pepsi or coke for you sinners right (laughs) the reality is the reality is the gospel is powerful in its fullness the gospel is powerful in its fullness. First Corinthians, as, as Garrett read just a few moments ago, 1 Corinthians says something that, that many, I guess, attractional models would not, uh, would not follow. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, if I can put my finger on it, for the word of the cross is foolishness, folly to those of us who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then in chapter two, which Garrett just read, and I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul said, I was not a good speaker, but God did a work in you because it's not me who who saved you, it's God who saved you. You see the difference there? Friends, sometimes I get the best compliments on my sermons when I think I absolutely trashed it, right? It's like I just totally, I just totally bombed that one. Like I wasn't making sense. I wouldn't even know what I said if you were to ask me what I said at the end of that thing, right? Right? The reality is God works through broken sinners because he's the one doing the work. It doesn't matter how, how effective of a speaker someone is or how great of a singer someone is or, or how great you pray when you pray in public or read the Bible. The reality is the word of God is what has power, not us. And so today, I'm going to read a hard passage, try to explain it, believing in God's word. Y'all with me? All right, let's do that. Verses 1 through 7 of John chapter 14. And the point, the point that we're trying to make, the first point is this. Jesus is the only way. Let not your hearts be troubled. These are the words of Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and and take you also to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know that the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, how do we not... I'm sorry... Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I want to zero in on that verse, verse 6, John 14:6. Jesus said to him, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." When we approach this passage, what we're looking at, friends, is one of the foundational passages in the Bible that teaches this doctrine the doctrine that's called the exclusivity of Christ. We don't like that word do we? exclusive. We don't like that. But the exclusivity of Christ is this doctrine that teaches that there is only one way to God. There is only one path to salvation. Because we are sinners and there's only one good payment. And that payment is the finished work of Jesus and his blood spilled on the cross. There is only one way to know God. He's the only way to heaven. His is the only righteousness that is good enough to make us right. We can't earn our way. We can't earn our way through our good works. We can't earn our way through finding another path or through being sincere about some other path. And because of this, we need to do a little bit of apologetics. Apologetics is just defending the faith. It's not apologizing for it, like I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's instead defending the faith, showing its reasonableness from the scriptures. See, part, this is the part of the gospel that grates against our, our 21st century American privilege understanding of the world. See, see we can go to Sam's Club And if we don't find what we like at Sam's Club in the huge pack, we can go over to Walmart. And if we don't find the options we like at Walmart, we can drive over to Target. And if Target doesn't have it, maybe Aldi does or or whatever the case may be. We feel like we should have plenty of options. And when we come to a, a verse like John 14, 6, and it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me what we think or what we are tempted to think is, wait a second, you mean to tell me that a sincere Hindu will not go to heaven? You mean to tell me that my coworker, who is probably the sweetest person I've ever met, I mean, I mean, I, I went out one day and they were in the parking lot changing a flat tire, I didn't even know I had a flat tire. I went away on vacation, I came home, my yard was mowed. You mean to tell me that, that my coworker, who is the, the sweet, just a good person, the sweetest person I've ever met, but who doesn't believe in Christ, does not go to heaven? You mean to tell me that you think you know better than everybody, the millions of other people in the world? Isn't that a little bit of arrogant, Christian? And after all, aren't all religions just like the blindfolded men feeling the elephant, right? Have you heard that illustration before that God is like an elephant? And all the different religions are just like blindfolded men and and one has a hold of the trunk and he says, oh, you know, God's kind of long and thin and another has a a hold of one of his legs. No, God is is huge and another has a hold of his side. He's like, God is like a wall. And they're all just kind of, they're all looking at the same God, but... But from different perspectives, I've got to give a few responses to this. The first is this. If you begin from the assumption that we are owed eternal life from God, if you begin from that assumption, you will be tempted to think that there ought to be multiple ways to heaven because God owes it to us, right? Right? But if we begin from the assumption that we deserve nothing, we will be thankful that God has provided a way, even if he hasn't provided 11, right? If we begin from the perspective that we deserve nothing, as a matter of fact, based on what I have done against God, I deserve hell, and you're telling me that God has provided a way to heaven? Praise God! That should be our response. Secondly, as Americans, we're kind of tempted to think of God like a buffet line, you know? Yesterday, I was at a wedding. Y'all remember Jacob Workman? He got married yesterday, went to his wedding, and they had one of these great little things there where you go through the line and get food. It was a chocolate fountain, you know? It's amazing that we used to, like before COVID, go to Golden Corral and that had like a cheese fountain. I just—it occurs to me I, I don't probably never go to Golden Corral again, <laughs> after, after COVID. But you know when we when we go through a buffet line, we can create our plate however we want it. Do you want barbecue chicken or would you like pork loin? You get a choice, right? Pick the three best looking pieces. Whatever you want. Not so much on Brussels sprouts. You don't have to take the Brussels sprouts. Just you know skip on over to the chocolate fountain. But if we're self-aware, we will examine how our culture has conditioned us to think about God, that we deserve, we deserve, we are owed something, we're owed something from other people, we're owed something from our government, we're owed something from God. We deserve. Is our idea of who God is biblical, or is our idea of who God is American, Southern, 21st century, subject to change next year. Thirdly, beware of the temptation to create your own on-the-spot religion, right? When we say, th- think about the sneaky pride here. Let's see if you can follow me. When we say, what about the sincere Hindu what we are saying is that Christianity is wrong and Hinduism is wrong, but I have found the answer. The answer is the religion of sincerity. Sincere people get to God. Friends, Hindus don't even believe that. Christians don't believe that. Muslims don't believe that. But we have on the spot created our own religion and said that who, whatever you're following, as long as you're sincere, who in the, in the world do we think we are to create our own religion? on the spot, and say, that is how everything else should be judged. Sincerity, a person's sincerity makes them good. Well, who made me God? And lastly, number four. This is where we answer the whole blind men and the elephant thing. Beware of overestimating your own vision. There's a little trick in that story about the elephant and the blind men, There's somebody in that story who's looking down and sees that it's an elephant and sees that they are blind men. And the person who has the vision in that story is the person who made up the illustration, right? Does that make sense? Why do you think that every other religion is blind and you're the one who's looking down on them seeing that they're blind but you have sight? It's an elephant, In other words, while we may be called prideful, while we may be called arrogant for believing that Christ is the only way, there is no other solution that that escapes that charge of arrogance, right? Every other alternative is in genuine arrogance. But what we're saying is that we have come to the Scriptures. We didn't create this book and and decide that it works for us. We have, uh, as best we know how, tried to submit ourselves under it because we believe that it is the Word of God. Here's the application. Here's the application. The good news about this passage of Scripture is that it is soaked with the heart of God. Listen to how John 14.1 starts off. See the heart of God? See His heart of love for you? John 14.1 begins, Let not your hearts be troubled, It's a God of comfort. He's trying to provide us with comfort. So all around this one offensive little verse is a God of comfort. In my Father's house are many rooms, verse 2. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, you can be also. Do you see who this God is? He's a God of love. He's a God of comfort. He's building a house. In that house are many rooms and he's doing what is necessary to bring you in so that you can be with him. And we get tripped up over verse six. This is the God that we serve. See, here's here's what's going on. What's going on is that we are tempted to think we are tempted to think that If like we're in a hallway, salvation should be like... We're in a hallway and there are ten doors in this hallway, right? We're tempted to think that if God were good, every door would lead to salvation, right? That's what we're tempted to think. But let me ask you a question. What if... What if you're in a hallway with ten doors... And only one of them leads to salvation. Wouldn't it be loving of God to tell you which one it is and then to give you the key? That is what God has done. We come into the hallway and God tells us, he says, listen, there are ten doors here, but nine of them lead to eternal death. Only one of them leads to salvation. And by the way, here's the key. Take it. Come and be with me. And we, and we dare to look back on him and say, God, who, who are you, God? There should be 10 doors and they should all lead to salvation. The heart that has been changed by Christ is a grateful heart. You you see Jesus' heart of invitation. He has a house. He wants you in it. He has told you which door to go through and he has given you the key, a key that he paid for by his blood on the cross so that your sins could be canceled and so that his righteousness could be credited to your account. This is a loving, loving God. That's the first part of John 14, 1 through 14. The second part, we're going to try to make this point. Second part is this. The gospel will spread after Jesus leaves. Point number two. The gospel will spread after Jesus leaves. Look in verses 8 through 14. Verse 8 says this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Jesus is saying, I'm going away. But after I go away, greater things you're gonna do. This is interesting. How could that be? Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, there's a ton here we could do, but here's the main thrust, I think, of this passage. And we see this coming up next, next week, where, where Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. So Jesus is saying, I'm getting ready to go away and it's good for you that I will. Now, they're not prepared to hear this. How could this be? Jesus, you've been our teacher. You've been walking around with us. You've been teaching us everything. You are God incarnate. How could it be that it would be better for us if you go away? It's because he's going to send the Holy Spirit. See, here's the reality. You know when you're walking through the gospels and Jesus teaches something great and his disciples look at him and say, we don't get it. You know, when when he says, you must be born again, and they're like, Nicodemus is like, you mean I gotta get back in my mother's womb and be born again? It's like, no, Nicodemus, you're not tracking on the same level. All throughout the Gospels, people are misunderstanding Jesus, but the reality is, after Jesus goes to the cross, after he dies, After he is buried and then raised, it's like their eyes are opened. And they see and they make sense. You see, friends, the gospel makes more sense if you're looking back on the end. And that's what I love about Easter Sunday. Because we get to talk about next week, we get to talk about how The story has been completed. The work is finished. Not only did Jesus die and was he the sacrifice, he rose victoriously to show just how fully he defeated sin. So there's a sense that the gospel makes only when it is completed. And what Jesus is saying is that after I leave and the Holy Spirit comes and he starts opening the eyes of people's hearts, there are going to be more people who believe after I'm gone than there were people who believed while I walked the earth this should be a huge encouragement to us because we live in this after day, in this after Jesus day right now where Jesus has gone back to heaven and he has given us the Holy Spirit and he has basically said, greater works will the church do. After I am gone. So friends, this is the good news for us. The Holy Spirit is here now. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens the eyes of hearts. I can't convince you into the kingdom when we have vacation Bible school in a few weeks. The last thing we're gonna do is try to strong arm some kids into saying a prayer and believing something they don't believe. But we are gonna trust the Spirit of God because the Spirit of God opens blind eyes and the Spirit of, of God brings new life. The Spirit of God is the only reason that we're here, friends. We are not here because we did good works. We're not even here because we made a decision one day. We are here if you are believing in Christ because God opened the eyes of our hearts and helped us to believe. Does that make sense? It's a work that he does. And we can have confidence today. We can have confidence that when we share the gospel, you don't have to strong arm anybody into the kingdom. You just share the gospel and the Holy Spirit that God has left will do a work. Maybe on the first time you share the gospel with them, or maybe on the 26th time you share the gospel with them. But the word of God says that greater works we will do because the Holy Spirit is the one who has the power to change hearts. That's where we place our hope, friends. We don't place our hope in a, in a balanced budget or a, or, 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 a, or a preacher who can speak. We don't, we don't place our hope in, in worship style or, or, or anything like that. We place our hope in the word of God being used by the spirit of God to open up the hearts and create the people of God. That's what we trust in. And friends, this should humble us. It should humble us because it reminds us that the only reason we believe is because God did a work. Friends, I think that it's good enough to stop right there. So why don't we now respond to God based on these two truths that we've talked about? The first truth is Jesus is the only way. Who do you know that is near to you but far from God? You are privy to the only way to God. And you have this gospel, but that's not all you have. You have been given the Spirit of God. And as you share the gospel with them, we can have confidence that some people will believe. Perhaps today you have believed. Perhaps you've recognized you've been living in your sin. You've been living your own way. You, you're hanging on to your own little kingdom. But, but Jesus' kingdom is better. And you want to turn away from his kingdom, uh, uh, turn away from your kingdom, pardon me, and turn toward his Perhaps the Holy Spirit of God has opened the eyes of your hearts and you see Jesus as beautiful for the first time today. I would love to talk to you, but right now, why don't we pray and we'll respond to him however the the Lord is is leading you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much that you've given us a clear word in the Bible. We thank you that, that you... Your son, Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, who is the only way to the Father. No one comes to the Father but by him. Thank you, God. You did not have to tell us how to get back to you. But you did. We deserved hell, but you gave us heaven. Lord and Lord, I pray that if if anyone has not done, if anyone here has not done business with this truth, that Jesus is the way. There is no way to get to God other than repenting of our sins, casting them on Jesus and asking for forgiveness. I pray that they would come today and they would begin relationship with you this very day. Today is the day of salvation. Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that we would be quick to share the gospel, trusting not in the power of our own words, not in our abilities of persuasion, but trusting instead in the power of the word of God and the presence of the spirit of God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen.